Hi, this is Lieven Heremans. You are listening to an interview episode of the Road to Open Science, a podcast by the Utrecht Young Academy. In this episode, I talk to Kirsty Whitaker. She's a research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and a senior research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. An edited version of this interview was published in the second episode of the podcast, titled Collaboration is Key. How did you get involved with open science? I did my PhD at the uh, University of California in Berkeley and uh, in neuroscience, and I was interested in brain development. And my path to open science is probably one that is very, very similar for a lot of early career researchers, which is that during the five years of my PhD, I became sort of a queen of finding null results or results that went in the opposite direction to the published literature. So my real sort of passion for why I care so much about open science is because I'm, I really want to prevent the wasted energy that we currently have of researchers around the world, PhD students, master's students, postdocs, trying to do, trying to replicate an analysis that they've seen in a published paper and failing. And the way that I found out that people other than me were failing, so it wasn't just me making mistakes, it was um, that, the re- that the study itself was difficult to replicate, is by going to conferences and talking with people at those conferences and thinking, oh, wow, there's lots of people in the same place as me. So what I'm really passionate about is trying to sort of make everybody else's lives easier. The other kind of really selfish reason for me to care about open science is that I make a lot of mistakes when I do things by hand. And so I personally have really benefited from learning how to program and getting over all of my imposter syndrome associated with writing code and not being maybe a proper computer scientist. Um, But I can see the benefits of being able to write programs for what I do and also make other people's lives easier when I share that code. And so the first aspect um, ties into the reproducibility problem. And the second is more of a personal struggle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're both, I think the the two aspects are really related, actually, because they tie back to a difference um, in the incentive structure that we have in academia at the moment from what we hope that a scientific uh, incentive structure is going to be, which is to reward people who forward knowledge um, versus what we have right now, which is more closely aligned with rewarding novelty. So new information, not confirmatory information, and also rewarding people who are fast. And then finally, and this is maybe a stretch goal, um, but what I would love to see is a, a scientific community that really rewards collaboration. So rather than having either one individual person or more likely one individual lab keep everything that they do very, very secret until their sort of shiny unveil when they publish their paper. I would love to live in a world where, as everybody figures something out, they share that information so that we can all together benefit from that. And what are your actual practices that support your point of view on open science? So I have a vastly varying 
range of practices depending on who I'm collaborating with. So I recently attended the Software Sustainability Institute's collaboration workshop and my team came up with the, we actually won a prize for the best idea for a project for the hack day. And that project is completely open. We are using openly available data. All our code is available from the beginning. All of our communications, all of the back and forth of ideas and the development of the processes that we're coming up with, all of that are, is publicly available in a GitHub repository, it's called CodeSight, and everybody, including people who were not at the hack day, uh, is welcome to take part. And they're welcome to take part by joining in, or they're welcome to take what we've done and reuse it. And all they have to do is is acknowledge that we that we had that idea. There are other collaborations though, where I'm not able to share the work that I do um, as I'm doing it. But what I can do, because it's a much easier sell, is convince the people that I work with to make the code open and reusable on publication and to make data accessible. So it's very, very difficult to ethically make child and adolescent information totally publicly easy to download. Um, a lot of the data that my research sort of uses it would be difficult to triangulate the identity of an individual person, but not technically impossible. And one of the things that we have to balance is protecting the privacy of our individual participants without whom we would not be able to understand anything about brain and childhood mental health disorders, and also the open science practices that we want to use. So. One of the big pieces of work that I do right now is work with uh, governance members at the clinical school at the University of Cambridge to set in stone a clear and transparent process through which another researcher would be able to access the data for the purpose of verifying my work. Um, it's a very, very small step when you try and sort of compare it to the the loftier goals that I have of my other projects of having totally open data, totally open code, everyone sharing, everyone taking part from the beginning. But I think it's a really important um, nudge to, to meet people where they are and where they've been comfortable working in science and in clinical, clinical medicine for so many years that we have to sort of bring along all of our colleagues who have been doing excellent science for many years. They just haven't been used to sharing all of the outputs. So what are some of your actual practices uh, that are exemplary of your take on open science? So my actual practices vary uh, depending on who I'm working with. So in some projects, I work in private GitHub repositories, so I version control every uh, piece of code that I write, and I'm able to work collaboratively with the small group of researchers who are also helping me with that code. So we keep our code in the cloud, but no one else is able to see it. And then when we publish that paper, we will be able to make that code available. Another project, I, um, I have the code openly available, and I work very hard to try and make sure that we have an inclusive and participatory uh, discussion. So not just that the code is technically available, but that it is um, easy to explain 
and that it is clear how people would be able to get involved and join in the development of the project. Most of my studies have quite closed data because I'm interested in um, child and adolescent brain development. But the code uh, for processing brain data or for understanding um, how we can visualize some of our results, that code is open, it's licensed, and it's easy for people to understand where they would be able to join in. So let's talk about the Mozilla Open Leadership. I applied in 2015 to be a Mozilla Fellow for Science, and I got through to the very last round, but I was not, unfortunately, selected that year. I was selected the following year. But as a result of my really fascinating interviews with the uh, women who work at the Mozilla Science Lab, I was invited to be a member of the very first open leadership cohort that was run by Mozilla. And what we did was attend a working open workshop in Berlin in February of 2016, where we discussed um, all the different aspects of running an open source project. And we can think about making code available, but we have to also be able to consider how we're going to build a community around our projects and how we're going to design for participation. And that is one of the hardest things to do um, if you haven't been sort of trained in thinking about building inclusive communities before. So we had the three days at the beginning and then we had um, 12 weeks of mentorship leading up to the global sprint in 2016. And those mentorship sessions were absolutely incredible. I had um, Abby and Aurelia were the two women who met with me each week and I would tell them about how my project was going and I would usually tell them that I was hadn't done as much as I, as I had hoped, but they would cheer me along and they would point out the successes that I'd had and they would suggest resources that would make my life a little bit easier. And towards the end, you know, we, we la I launched a website for um, recommending uh, underrepresented minority members of um, science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. And that was the first round, and it is, I'm currently a mentor for the fifth round of the Open Leadership Cohort, and we have more and more and more people each time. So built in from the model, from the original model, is to increase the number of mentors so that you don't just have Abby and Aurelia having to meet with every member of the cohort, so that um, people who have gone through the training are able to mentor new people each time. And I've mentored now projects looking at supporting uh, girls to code in India, uh, a story about, uh, sorry, a collection of stories in Detroit um, as an area was being gentrified. There was a project to collect the stories of the people who had lived there for their whole lives. And I'm currently um, mentoring a project looking at um, a different, a new way of processing brain imaging data and also building a resource for uh, global health, specifically related to post-traumatic stress disorder. Just for the people who don't know the Mozilla Open Leadership Program, can you really shortly explain what it actually entails? We're on the fifth round of the Mozilla Open Leadership Training Program right now. I've been a mentor for four years and I was a member of the original cohort. What the program has evolved to is around 100 project leaders. So these are sometimes early career researchers, but they can also be um, 
open data or privacy activists from around the world. And they join a 12-week program where we have uh, mentorship, individual one-on-one -on -one mentorship every other week and community calls to, to the whole cohort together uh, in, on the in, in between. And we learn about um, how to build a community around your idea that is participatory by design and open from the beginning. And in the general scheme of things, just the Mozilla Open Leadership Program is supports the open web and a healthy internet. Uh, actually, that's what the website says. So yeah. how do you consider that to be, how does that connect to what many, the many uh, perspectives on open science that fall under this umbrella term of open science? One of the questions on the application form to be a Mozilla Fellow for Science is how will the open web support your work? And I think it's a really great question because I definitely hadn't considered myself before I joined the Mozilla community to care about the open web. But if you think about it, it's highly, highly aligned with my goals as an open scientist of making science more efficient. So we can utilize the power of the internet and the fact that the open web is a resource that is available to all to communicate our research, to conduct our research. If we're um, writing code and making sure that that code is version controlled, for example, in a tool such as GitHub or GitLab, we can also use cloud-based resources to be able to actually process our data. But even if you just imagine email, um, we can't do the collaborative work without the open web, without making sure that we have this, this incredible resource. And for me, it's not just about doing the science that we currently do in a more efficient and more reproducible way. Open science also involves um, citizen science. So building tools that sit on top of the power of the internet and allow people from all walks of life to support scientific endeavors. So we can talk about the mini grants? Yes, so the mini grant was not held by me. So this was my research assistant, just to be clear. Yeah, well, the main quote I really liked is that um, we wanted to make the code useful for people who aren't called Christy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, right. Um, I published in collaboration with uh, Dr. Petra Vertesh and Professor Ed Bullmore and our many colleagues who are members of the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network at the University of Cambridge and University College London, a paper in 2016, in the summer of 2016, that looked at adolescent brain development. And we looked at the brain as a network. And so we shared all of the code that we had written and we also replicated all of the analyses in two independent cohorts. And that's really cool. And we've been highlighted by um, a few different groups as being a really good example of reproducible research. However, if you try to actually run the code and reuse that code for your own purposes, which you, you, it is licensed to do, you are very welcome to do that, you can find it all, it's all available, you will probably have quite a bit of difficulty. And so um, Isla Staden, who is a research assistant with me at the Alan Turing Institute, 
she was the recipient of a Nasvilla mini grant to turn this monolithic code that works for me into a software package that allows people who are not named Kirsty Whitaker to conduct the same or related brain imaging analyses. So what she's done is she's taken out the parts of the code that are particularly important. She's modularized it. So she's made it easier to take the different parts and bolt them together for your particular use. And she's also added very, very importantly, some tests to make sure that the code is actually doing what you think it's doing. And we have that now on continuous integration um, and also some documentation so that you don't have to, again, get inside of my head to understand exactly what I was trying to do. It sounds to me in an abstract way that you're actually, what you're actually doing is, or what this mini grant actually made available is your hand scribbled notes made available for everyone, basically. Yeah. So, well, so the, so the hand scribbled notes, I think were already available. What Isla has done is effectively type them up and put them into chapters and put them into, um, sections that have a description, some usage guide, some examples. Um, she's actually made a wonderful binder interactive example that you can run just in a web browser yourself. And so this is one of the points about sort of open science being so much more than just having the code uh, under an open source license. Because if you can't actually run that code or understand everything that's written so you can imagine you know you may have access to all of my notebooks but if you can't read my handwriting or if i use a whole bunch of shorthand that you don't know it's not actually very useful for you and so what she has done what isla has done is really transform all of those notes into something that's so much more digestible and usable and accessible all right um brain mapping do you know what they're actually doing in Utrecht? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, maybe we should then just talk about brain mapping in general, maybe in relation to open science. So one of my current projects, which I'm really, really excited about, is uh, I've just reviewed applications for a Google Summer of Code student to work on the BIDS starter kit. And the BIDS project is the brain imaging data structure. And I like to describe it as one of the most boring projects you could ever come up with, but also the project that is going to transform our world. So effectively, the goal of the BIDS project is to come up with a standard for how you name your brain imaging files. And the starter kit, this, this project that I'll be mentoring over the summer, is to help people rename their files as easily as possible so that they are compliant. There's an altruistic reason for wanting to do this, and that's so that when you share your data, it's understandable and usable by others. But there's a really, really wonderful um, carrot that goes along with the bid standard, which are bids apps. And if you have named your files in a standard way, such that a computer program is able to detect what information is there, what type of brain scan you have, what information you have about the participant. It is then much, much easier for us all to write 
programs. I call them glass boxes because they're a little bit like a black box, but they're open source. So you can go in and have a look at, at what they're doing. But they are self-contained um, programs that will analyze that data for you. And there's a project that's led by Chris Goldweski and Russ Poldrack at the uh, Stanford Center for Reproducible Neuroscience called Open Neuro. And what you can do is upload your data to Open Neuro and then run one of these bids apps and they will process all of the data for you. It's a, using the Amazon Web Services cloud processing platform. And you will get results back from the very highest level of reproducible research within hours, maybe, maybe one day if you're doing something that's really computationally intensive. And that is only uh, only possible if everybody has a standard way of naming their files. So that's one of the reasons why we're putting this effort into making sure that everyone is able and, and understands the concept. And that's why this bid starter kit exists. But what a cool revolutionary way of conducting our analyses. So rather than having an individual researcher sit and struggle to install Python and then figure out how to do the same step that literally thousands of people have done before. What if we just made that something that we could all share? And that's what these bids apps are doing. So it's way more efficient. It's, it's much, much more efficient. And what I hope is that it will open up space in the sort of lives and minds of the researchers, the PhD students, the postdocs, to step back from the nitty gritty of writing the same code over and over and really be very creative in the analyses that we're able to do. Here at the Alan Turing Institute in the UK, we have a lot of specialists around machine learning and traditional brain imaging experiments are too small to be able to apply those sorts of methods. But if we not only share our code, but also make our data available, we can, we can start to pool all of these resources together and answer bigger questions than any individual research group would be able to do alone. Okay, so now for the last part. And that was the reflections of your colleagues on your open science work. It can be lonely sometimes, caring an awful lot about open science. I personally haven't experienced many people, maybe five in total over the last few years, who are pointedly against open science. What I struggle with most often though, is the power and the inertia of the status quo. So it's very, very hard to encourage people to change what they have been doing for so long. And I have a sort of two-pronged approach for trying to nudge people towards um, adopting more open science practices. The first and the most, most important is to provide education for all of the researchers and also for the senior academics and the policymakers on why these steps are so important. 
and also how you can find out more information about version controlling your code, for example, about what it means to document your data. Um, and I also try very hard to meet people where they are. So science, although science sells itself as being um, sort of politics free and fact based, it's done by humans. It's done by real people. And there are very, very few actual bad guys in the world. There's a lot of people who would like to do good science, but who would also like to pay their mortgage. And we are moving from a competitive culture in science towards a more collaborative culture. And that means accepting that things are going to change. And it also means accepting that people are going to be nervous about that change. And so I try and encourage people where I can. The more junior you are, the more compassionate I am. But the biggest, biggest effects, I think, that I will be able to make as an open scientist are working with senior academics and having them understand the benefits, the efficiency benefits, um, the creativity benefits that come with adopting some of these open science practices and the interactions that I have with governance and policymakers around how we can work together to maintain our ethical responsibilities, to maintain the privacy of our participants, but also to support the generation of knowledge uh, in the wider scientific community. Awesome. That was one really nice answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you practice it? Uh, no, but I, I've said it a lot. <laughs> this is, I say it to myself when I'm very frustrated going home on the... Nice. Uh, and it really also felt heartfelt in a way. I don't know if that's the correct word, but... It is heartfelt. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's just no need to be angry with everyone if they're not the same as you. What are you doing right now at the, at the Turing Institute? So on Tuesday, after the Easter break, we closed applications for our Turing Reproducible Research Champions. Myself and the head of the research software engineering team at the Allen Turing Institute, Martin O'Reilly, have a seed funding grant which provides research software engineering support for anyone who is wanting to make their research, their Turing funded research reproducible. And so what I have on, next on my plate uh, over this weekend is to read through the applications that we've received from members of the Turing community who have put forward research papers that they have um, published or at least put up as preprints and also their code and their data such that we are able to choose probably three different people who we can help to level up their research so that we can hold them as shining examples of reproducible research. And one of the goals of our selection process is to make sure that we have a diverse group of champions. So we don't want to only promote people who are doing research that is really easy to reproduce because the data is totally available already. 
we want to choose people who need a little bit more support maybe from the software engineering side of cleaning up their code just as Isla did for mine or people who are not able to make their data publicly available and we can maybe put in place some processes or, or simulate some data that is it is possible to ship. And we're also interested in um, choosing some really exciting research that we hope will inspire others to reach that same level of reproducibility. So I'm looking forward to reading through all of these proposals over the weekend. It's going to be really fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, oh, you're welcome. I must say, on a personal note, I really enjoyed your blog also. Oh, so, thanks. So uh, <laughs> keep it going. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thanks again so much. Thanks for listening to the full interview edition of the Road to Open Science podcast from the Utrecht Young Academy. I was talking to Kirsty Whitaker, a research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and a senior research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. An edited version of this interview was featured in our second podcast episode, which also features interviews with Daniel Lakens from the University of Eindhoven and Luke Brinkman and Anita Eerland from the Open Science Community at Utrecht University. The title of this episode is Collaboration is Key. You can check that out in our feed too. We love to know what you think of this podcast. The show notes and discussion on the contents are hosted on www.openscience-utrecht.com. There are more episodes coming soon, as well as full interview episodes. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out. You can find us on Twitter using at r2ospodcast with a numeric 2. Thanks go to Sandy Faez and Marisa Moll for bringing the podcast together and Andy Clark for his production assistance.